Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for publication of Christagenia Saturday, February 22nd, 2020. Right now, it is Wednesday morning, and we are here with Truthbids once again to present our address of Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine, Part 2. Here we shall continue our discussion addressing aspects of this book. Last week, we began with Chapter 2, the basis of the seedline, satanic seedline doctrine. And we still haven't found a copy of the book, which contains the first chapter. So we'll pick up where we left off. As I already said, once we see some of Weissman's arguments and methods of analysis, I'm certain that we shall indeed find that he failed to answer his own question in the title of his book. Truthfids, hello. Thank you for being here once again. Hello, Bill. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to say uh, I'm also uploading these videos on my BitChute channel. It's simply BitChute slash Truthfids. Uh, one of the advantages is you can always leave a comment on there, ask any questions, and engage with other CI people. Uh, even like listeners who are veterans and generally know all the basics, they can always go out there and help a few newbies. Um, BitChute hasn't been fully censored yet. I'm sure it will pretty soon or eventually. So um, you should note that you can share links to Christogenia on there and also link directly to specific podcasts or articles like Pragmatic Genesis and, you know, all your other articles. So in that case, it's really helpful. Um, also, Bible Basics was on BitChute uh, with pictures and all that. For various reasons, the uploader has taken them down, but I will be re-uploading them pretty soon because I really thought those were helpful. They got a lot of interaction and they were really good for new people to grasp CI and two seed line. And um, just lastly, um, I just want to say a lot of the comments I see typically are always people, they kind of understand 2C line, but then they always come up, okay, well, what about this verse or this verse or that verse? And I just wanted to say, you know, we're going to go into Charles Weissman and show you how he's completely wrong. But even if you do listen to it and it makes sense, you've got to study yourself. Uh, as you were saying last uh, podcast, um, that you got to build your foundation on rock. You have to be studying and you have to know the stuff yourself. If not, just another Charles Weissman, another slick speaker will come down the line and rock your foundation if you're not studying yourself. Would you agree, Bill? And I'm ready to go whenever you are. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It, it um, startles me when even af after inspecting many of my podcasts or commentaries that people will say, what about this verse? And think that they're tripping me up. Like I missed that verse. Did I miss that verse? Really? Uh, I mean, I've been studying the Bible for 24 years. I've read it several times. I've read it in Greek. I've read it in English. Do you really think I missed that verse that I never saw it, that I never stopped to consider it? Because that's just silly. That's silly. 
I mean, I don't know everything, but I haven't missed any verse. I've considered them all in, in the context of this message and in the context of the Bible itself, the history behind it, the historical context that the verse is set in. Yeah, <clears throat> we have thought all this out. We've been arguing with clowns like Weissman, and I will prove he's a clown. We've been arguing with people like him for 20 years, and Clifton probably for 30 before his, his passing two years ago. So, yeah, we've considered these verses where God says to the children of Israel in Isaiah that he creates good and evil, or where it says in, in, in Scripture that um, Yahweh God created the wicked for the day of destruction. We've considered those verses. I can explain those verses. They're not going to trip me up. That's just crazy. But these superficial readers of Scripture will take one verse out of context and think, gotcha, get the fuck out of here. That's crazy. And yeah, I said that. <laughs> That's nuts to think that way <laughs> when we have a, an entire body of work presenting our case. You better really come up with something of substance in order to counter it. Your one verse wonders are never going to work, ever. Yeah, absolutely. And um, many of the kind of newish people who sign up to the forums, when I speak to them and I ask them, oh, so you've came to, to Seedline, I always find out, yes. They always say, yes, I went and studied it myself. I listened to this podcast, to this, you know, even to Clifton and others. And sometimes they'll surprise me. They'll come out with quotes from your podcast and that. And that's how I always know that they've really done the background, the research and built the framework up so they truly understand it and that they won't just be shaken just if somebody challenges them just with the odd verse here and there. And, and you know? they, they are the people that we appreciate. I don't want people to just believe me because I run my mouth and have a website. That's not true. I never wanted that. And anybody, and, and I know people have made that claim about me, but anybody that makes that claim is just a fool. Clifton and I, and, and Clifton has always expressed this in his writing. We don't want followers. We want fellow workers who are willing to study. Once they realize that there's something to this message, they have to be willing to study to the point where they own it where they don't have to say, Fink said this, or Fink said that, or Emma Heiser said that, where they could say, the Bible says this, or, or Josephus explained this. So that's the context that this Bible verse is in, in the history of the times. That's, you have to own this message. That's what Christ meant when he said that the kingdom of heaven was like, a very dear pearl that a man found in the field. And he didn't just pocket the pearl that's stealing, right? He goes and buys that field. You have to own this message to have that pearl. Before we get back to our address of Weissman's book, um, in our last segment of this presentation, we had a basic discussion, which I... 
hoped would answer many of the questions that you often receive from people who are new to Christian identity. I don't know if you want to add to that or if we just roll on. If there were other questions raised, perhaps it might take a couple of weeks, right, for people on your, your BitChute channel where you posted the last program to come around and ask the questions. So we, we can leave a little time for that. Yeah, exactly. I'm happy to just get straight into it. Okay. Last week, we explained how Weissman lied, where he had asserted that the partaking of fruit was never used in Scripture to, de to describe the act of sexual intercourse. And we showed evidence to the contrary from the Song of Solomon and also from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was contemporary to the time of Abraham and Moses. And that can be easily dismissed as pagan or, or as belonging to a different people. But you can't dismiss it because that is the, the Epic of Gilgamesh represents the historical context in which the early Hebrews had, had existed. And it shows literary idioms in use at the time that Moses was writing Genesis. You must understand, in order to fully understand a language, and this is where we have some shortcomings with our understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. In order to fully understand a language, you really have to have a lot of insight into the culture of the time when the language was spoken. Sometimes that's kind of hard to reach, when you're in the earliest chapters of Genesis, even up to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So there are still idioms which are not understood perfectly by any Bible commentator or any Bible translator because their, their historical context and literary context are just a little bit out of reach. So we could do the best we can, but like Paul said, we really do see through a glass darkly. We also mocked Weissman for his ridiculous contentions over the use of the Hebrew word, which means touch. After we did that, a member of the Christogenia Forum brought up the example of the words of Abimelech recorded in Genesis chapter 26, where in the context of sexual relations, Abimelech had said, that he that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So Weissman's contention that the word can only apply to the touching of a man in that manner certainly has no merit whatsoever, and he should be shamed and mocked for making such an assertion. Moreover, anybody that follows him and believes his assertion, they should also be shamed and mocked. But what is more ridiculous is where he described the parable of the trees found in Ezekiel chapter 31. And he made the contention that because the cedar tree of Ezekiel 31 was described as having great beauty, it is next said, now I don't know who says this, but Weissman himself, Weissman himself is saying it. It is next said that this tree meaning the Assyrians of Ezekiel chapter 31, because that's the cedar tree. 
it is next said that this tree was able to sexually seduce Eve. While Weissman admitted that trees could be used as allegories for people and nations, he himself insisted that the cedar tree representing the Assyrians was the tree of Genesis chapter 3. And that insistence is ridiculous because Assyrians themselves did not exist until Genesis chapter 10. So he was either being purposely dishonest or he was too stupid to figure out what we actually say, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also an allegory, but for a different race of people. And this brings us to the top of page seven in Weissman's book, where he proceeds to misrepresent incomplete citations of Paul's words from his epistles. On page seven, Weissman quotes 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse three, and 1 Timothy chapter two, verse 14. And he is focusing on the word beguiled, which is how it is in the King James Version which also may mean seduced or to seduce. And he says, and I quote, by Paul's interpretation of Genesis 3.13, the beguiling was a mental deception which corrupted Eve's thinking, not a sexual seduction which corrupted her body. So Weissman is essentially taking his own interpretation of Genesis 3.13 and insisting that it also belonged to Paul. And that's a lie. That is not true. And I will show that it's not true. First, we will read 1 Timothy 2.14, because I'm not really going to comment on that one at great length. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And, and I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I am going to comment on it at great length. Not the way I originally wrote this, but the way I rewrote it yesterday. But Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So now I must ask, if Eve was only deceived mentally, as Weissman asserts, what was her transgression? And if Adam was not deceived mentally, what was his transgression? The only real deception going on here is Weissman deceiving his readers. In truth, there are wicked thoughts. Men have wicked thoughts all the time, but there are no laws punishing thoughts in scripture. You show me one law in Scripture, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Numbers, even in the New Testament, which punishes a thought. Yes, Christ says if you look at a woman, you've already committed adultery in your mind, but the law does not punish adultery in your mind. It only punishes you when you actually execute the act of adultery. So Christ's warning serves to show men that as soon as they think of the sin, if they agree with it, then they're, they're, they're 
just as guilty as committing it, but the law doesn't punish you for that. It only punishes you if you actually commit it. All the laws punish are wicked actions. So Eve certainly could not have committed a thought crime. Thought crimes are not in the Bible. Thought crimes are for Jews. Only Jews punish thought crimes. As we have already explained, Adam and Eve were punished. They were punished for sin. The word which Paul uses for transgression in that passage is parabasis. It's a word meaning to step aside, literally, which was used for somebody who skirts the law, evades the law, or breaks the law. That's parabasis. Paul used the same word in Romans chapter 4, where he said, because the law works wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression, no parabasis. You can't step aside and skirt something which hasn't been laid down, which doesn't exist. You can't step off a sidewalk if the cement hasn't been poured, because there is no sidewalk. That's the basis for parabasis or parabasis. But the Apostle of John, in chapter 3 of his first epistle, also explained that whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is transgression of the law. Then again, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. However, sin was imputed to Adam and Eve and to all of their descendants who were later destroyed in the flood because they had sinned. So where is the law for which their sins were imputed? Weissman at one time had written a handbook of biblical law. So he has no excuse for not knowing this. He never told us, oh, it's just a thought crime. Eve thought wrong. Get out of here. That's nuts. <laughs> Identity Christians do recognize the law of kind after kind, as it is frequently stated in the Genesis creation account. But Moses did not write that account until long after the time of Adam. The only law given directly to Adam was in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So Adam died, and his descendants in Genesis chapter 6 died. And this is the only law which they had. They had no other law. By that we know what it means to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we see in Revelation chapter 12 is the race of the fallen angels. That was the sin of Genesis chapter 6, so it must also have been a violation of that same law, since there is no other law by which they may have been punished. Paul is explaining that Eve was deceived into transgressing, but Adam was not deceived. 
he made a conscious decision to accept his wife after she sinned and to follow her in her sin. Adam was the first feminist. As Paul described at the end of Romans chapter 1, not only are those who transgress the capital offenses mentioned in the law worthy of death, but also those who approve of them. Then where Weissman cited 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he was also being deceptive as he failed to mention 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Here, we will read them both from the King James Version, where Paul is warning the Christian assembly at Corinth against becoming corrupted. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So, if the episode in the garden did not result in a loss of virginity, why would Paul describe it as a loss of virginity? Why would he use an allegory as an allegory what had happened to Eve, and describe it as a loss of virginity if it was not a loss of virginity. Eve was defiled in a sexual act, losing her virginity. Paul did not want the assembly at Corinth, a part of the Bride of Christ, to become corrupted in that same way. Not literally, but metaphorically which is the purpose of such allegories. If I make an allegory, if you have a new car, truth fits, and it's very fast, and I make an allegory, that car is as fast as a Jaguar, then it makes sense because a Jaguar is a very fast animal. It runs very quickly. But if I say, wow, that car's fast, it's as fast as a turtle. Maybe I'm making a joke because turtles aren't fast at all. But Paul isn't making a joke. The allegory, one half of the allegory has to be literally true so that the second half is metaphorically true. That's the way allegories work. If one half of the allegory isn't literally true, the thing which something's being compared to if that's not literally true, the allegory makes no sense at all. So, Weissman is an yeah. idiot, and he's basically accusing Paul of being an idiot. <laughs> if I say your car is as fast yeah, as, exactly. a, as a turtle, it makes no sense. <laughs> Especially if the car is a fast car. So, what happened to Eve? Paul meant literally and used it as an allegory of the church if it were to become corrupted in that same manner by being deceived. If Eve had not lost her virginity as a result of her own deception, Paul would not have mentioned virginity. Not at all. He would have spoken of fidelity or 
faithfulness or something else. Yeah. Um, Bill, I was just going to say, um, also, the one seed line that Charles Weissman pushes, it just doesn't add up with what's happening today. Uh, two seed line, it's exactly what's going on today uh, in terms of Genesis. What happened in Genesis is what we see happening all serpents seducing many eaves. And if you don't understand this, you don't understand what's going on in the world. And you can see that the Jews, they follow the same blueprint of what happened in the garden. Their overall strategy is to mix, to go after the woman. The serpent didn't go to Adam and try and deceive Adam, but rather went behind his back to try and seduce Eve. And they do the same thing now. Um, not to go too much off topic, but you know, the whole women's liberation movement is just to create this same scenario in Genesis where Eves are on their own, you know, our white women, they're not protected by Adam and that they can seduce them or some other bastard on the tree of knowledge of good and evil can seduce Eves. That's what it's all about. And if you understand this, you understand what's going on in the world. Even if you're not a Christian, you can see it all the time with all the propaganda that they're always trying to recreate this same scenario in Genesis where they can find white women on their own, naive, and have them have bastard children, essentially. But that is exactly what had persuaded me that there is something to the 2C line message, because I saw that in history and in contemporary culture. And I thought to myself, there's gotta be something to this. I have to study this to see if it's true. That set me off, it helped set me off. It's one of the things that set me off on a, a studying the scripture for 12, 16 hours a day for 11 solid years, the whole time I was in prison, which set me off on my career of the last 11 years, studying further and trying to explain what I've learned. That's life. I mean, I was fortunate to have 11 years in isolation where I could see and, and study this message and, and the original languages behind the scripture and the full context of scripture because of what you just said. That's what helped instigate my studies. There had to be something to it. Yeah. And also, you know, sometimes it's a, an uncomfortable subject for women, but it's clear that Eve was unable to fully resist the serpent that only Adam was, or at least until he gave two lessons that women should always be under the protection of men and men must lead. They must not follow after their wife. If not, what happens in Genesis can happen again, essentially. And, and that's what Paul of Tarsus teaches in the New Testament. But the woman, and, and the man also needs the, the woman, as Paul also teaches, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A man can be tempted to commit fornication if he's without a wife. Um, that's why if he really needs to fulfill his sexual urges, the proper way to do that is to go get a wife. And and not just float around and, and play the singles game in barrooms. So it, it, it does work both ways. But women are susceptible and cannot defend themselves from 
the cunning of a man with criminal intents, that's for sure. The woman really doesn't have a lot yeah. of defense against that. And all the um, propaganda that you see, you know, in the media, it's all directly. I mean, it's not, of course, it's for us as well, but generally it's targeted at women, you know, with the emotional arguments, you know, like help the, the uh, helpless people in Africa, et cetera, et cetera. So peel into those emotions, all the, um, you know, white women with a big black nigger. It, it's always generally targeted at women and it's always the most intelligent Jews who come up with this, or perhaps that's the wrong word, you know, devious, cunning, treacherous, and only, you know, men are the ones who are only capable of standing up to this, preferably Christians with the Holy Spirit of Yahweh, who can truly see and guide our women. Well, this is exactly what's happened. I mean, it's the communist playbook. If you've ever read the communist manifesto, the protocols, that this is that this is explained throughout that sort of literature where they will separate our women from us and use that to undermine our women and basically create Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy our race. And now that they've achieved that, there are literally millions and millions of Eves in the world today. There's no doubt. As yep. for and that's why it's so important to understand Genesis. Sorry, Bill. Exactly. And, and that's the story of much of Scripture. As for comparing um, Eve's loss of virginity to the possible corruption of the Christian church, Paul is not the only writer in Scripture to make such an allegory. It's found in the Protevangelion of James, which even though I have disputes with it, is nevertheless an early Christian work or an early pseudo-Christian work, but it shows how people thought about the event of Genesis chapter 3. It's also found in what I believe is a legitimate early Christian work in the fourth book of Maccabees, which is an early Christian story of a brave woman and her sons from the period of the Seleucids who withstood persecution. There, in chapter 18 of the translation, which is found in Brenton's Septuagint, we read, And the righteous mother of the seven children spoke also as follows to her offspring. I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house, but I took care of the built-up rib, which is clearly an allusion to Eve, and she's using the story of Eve in parallel with her own. And she says, no destroyer of the desert or ravisher of the plain injured me, nor did the destructive, deceitful snake make spoil of my chaste virginity. And I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. This is how early Christians understood the allegory in Genesis chapter 3, that it represented the fact that Eve lost her virginity when she ate of the tree. At the end of page 7, Weissman insists that that term eat means to consume, and has no 
sexual connotation. However, we read in Proverbs chapter 9 that stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Where it is speaking of a foolish woman sitting at the door of her house looking for men to have sex with, to lead astray. Likewise, we read later in Proverbs chapter 30, such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. But adultery is not the literal act of eating. There, the word eat is a metaphor, a euphemism for what an adulteress actually does, which is to engage in unlawful sexual relations. And it is not to be understood literally. So once again, Weissman, the self-professed Bible law expert, is found to be a liar. He's a liar. On page 8, Weissman says, If to eat from a tree meant to have sex, why would God tell Adam and Eve that they may freely eat, and he puts in parentheses, i.e., have sex, with every tree, and he puts in parentheses, i.e., every person, in the garden. Such a proposition is totally untenable. This is Weissman, it's not me. It should be clear that the beguiling and eating have nothing to do with sex and the trees, while used in a figurative or symbolic way, do not represent people. And here Weissman is also being dishonest. He makes a ridiculous claim in order to ridicule us, as if we somehow missed the portion of scripture he is citing. God planted all of the other trees in the ground, and they were good for food. But two trees were not planted in the ground, although they were in the midst of the garden. Therefore, these two trees are distinguished from food trees. They are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It should be obvious that no tree can grant life, although they may serve for food, and in that manner they may help to sustain life, but they don't give life. All trees are alive. All trees are useful for something. However, the tree of life was not planted in the ground like all the other trees, except one. So in reference to that one other tree, what tree can have any intrinsic knowledge of good and evil? And what tree do we eat from that causes death? If we eat from a poisonous tree and die, how does that give us knowledge of good and evil? Later, we learn that Christ is the tree of life and that his people are the branches. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil must also represent a race, and the serpent, being representative of that tree, being the same serpent of Revelation chapter 12, that tree must be the devil and the fallen angels. Jude refers to them where he writes in his epistle that they are the angels which kept not their first estate. And Jude goes on to call them trees whose fruit withers without fruit, twice dead, 
plucked up by the roots, where we see that they are indeed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as well as the fallen angels. And Jude describes them as they are still among us today. He's speaking of them contemporaneously to his own time. Then they are described where they are described in Revelation chapter 12. They are associated with that old serpent. These are also called sons of God, as the King James Version has it, or the angels of Genesis chapter 6. Touching this tree was the same as having sexual relations with the giants, which were already in the earth, where we read in Genesis chapter 6 that there were giants in the earth in those days. They were already there. And also after that, when the quote-unquote sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bare children unto them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. So giants were already in the earth in those days. Where did Yahweh create giants? I've read Genesis chapter 1 in Greek, Hebrew, and several different English translations. I've never seen where Yahweh, God, created giants. The only thing that explains that is that those giants are the fallen angels. And these angels here, coming into the daughters of men, are the fallen angels. That's not a far stretch, not at all. Some manuscripts of the Septuagint have angels instead of sons of God. And some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Genesis Apocryphon, and some of the Enoch literature have sons of heaven instead of sons of God, which I believe is the original reading, not trusting the Masoretic text, since Adam is the son of God. And I argued in favor of that opinion in a paper that I wrote, I believe, in 2007, maybe earlier, I don't remember. And that paper's called The Problem with Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And it discusses that subject. Further on, on Bill. page 8, Yes. Oh, sorry. No, go on. Uh, some people, uh, they have difficulty. Um, they always think that the giants and the bastard races are two separate things. And they don't realize that it's just one one race of corruptions and that giants are similarly anomalies that can happen. Would that be correct? Well, well that is <clears throat> correct. And, and the Book of Enoch, the, the Enoch literature, and I don't trust the Ethiopic Enoch. It has a lot of interpolations that are contrary to our canonical scriptures. I think that the book of Enoch was played with in Ethiopia. I do have a much higher degree of trust for the copies of Enoch literature, which are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Jude was quoting Enoch in his epistle. Jude must have had access to something that the apostles esteemed to be legitimate copies of Enoch. And I think that if there is any representative of those copies in the world today, it must be similar to the copies found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, because that's all we have. And in, in the Dead yeah. Sea Scrolls, I, 
and in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it, it talks about the the um, <clears throat> the demons and the spirits of giants and the spirits of bastards, and and it basically pulls them all together. These are differing descriptions for for the same race of fallen angels. Yeah. And when you mix and blend species, you're going to get anomalies and, you know, freak shows. We even still today have midgets and dwarves, which must be all a part of this corruption, right? Because that was not originally God's creation, his intention. Well, well we also still have giants. If you yeah. just look up on Google Jewish giants, you should find several examples of, of Jews from <clears throat> from the that the um, southern Russian provinces, from the southern provinces of the former USSR, for the most part, and, and, and around the regions of Armenia and, and Turkey, you have Jews from that area who carry a gene which causes a Jewish giant every so often, probably as frequently as Jewish dwarves, which are very common. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. I'm not saying that no other race can produce a dwarf, but Jews produce dwarves commonly. The seven dwarves were seven kikes. Yeah. I don't know why they worked. That was an anomaly. The, the um, <laughs> I, I'm convinced that the the dwarfs in the Nibelungen lead, which Siegfried the Rhenish prince had stolen the gold belonging to the Nibelungs, who were dwarfs, I believe that they were probably medieval Jews, early medieval Jews. I'm convinced. Yeah. And um, we're all part of the tree of life. Uh, if you marry someone from your race, then you're going to produce another branch on that tree of life. But if you go outside a race, then your branch is scorched and it dies forever. Your lineage is gone. And we should completely avoid the tree of good and not good, knowledge of good and evil, the other races altogether. Well, well right. The um, <clears throat> the analogy exists in, <clears throat> excuse me, in Jeremiah chapter two. It's repeated in Isaiah that Yahweh planted a pleasant plant, and when you mix your race, you set that pleasant plant with strange slips and strange slips are bastards that he is never going to accept yeah and that's something we have to face up to that that would be your choice you cannot blame yahweh for that you made that decision if you ever do marry a bastard it's all your fault you cannot then go okay can this bastard be in the resurrection well, well right and this is highly demonstrable in scripture Yahweh did create the wicked for the day of judgment. And that's a reference to fallen angels. He created those angels, but you cannot blame God for the rebellion of those angels. You can't blame God for your sin. Where do David or Solomon or the wisest men in scripture ever blame God for sin? Nowhere. He gave us the capacity to sin or he gave us the capacity to choose to be obedient and follow his law. And when we sin, 
even though God knows that we are going to sin before we sin, when we get to that point where we are going to commit this sin, we agree to it. We do it. It's our decision, and we have to concede that God is good, but that we are wicked, and we cannot, and that's repentance, and we cannot blame God for our sins. Like Paul said, can the yeah. pot say to the clay, can, can the clay pot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? No, it can't. It can't say that. Esau, Yahweh God knew that Esau was going to sin as soon as he was conceived and probably eons before he was conceived. So he told Rebecca, there are two nations in thy womb and the elder self serve the younger. And Esau, his fornication was foreseen by God as soon as he was, or before he was conceived. But in the permissive will of God, Esau was allowed to do what he was going to do. He grew up, he took Canaanite wives, he mixed his race, he was rejected by his mother. For that reason, his mother decided that they had to deceive Isaac because Isaac wasn't getting it and get the birthright and the blessings on Jacob, which they did. And once they were successful, if you read Genesis chapters 28 and 29, then Isaac was awoken to the problem and understood and told Jacob, if you go to Padanaram and take daughters of your own kin for wives, then all the blessings of Abraham will come upon you. And Paul explains later on in the epistle to the Hebrews that Esau was rejected and could not find repentance because he was a fornicator. He was a race mixer. And he never did take a wife of his own people. Yeah. And um, these bastards are always described throughout all the Bible. Um, you know, you see many allegories, uh, allegories sorry, like clouds that can't hold water. Uh, pots that have holes in where the Holy Spirit leaks out Broken is always systems. talking about these bastards. And as we said last week, two seed lines all throughout the Bible, it's constantly reminding, constantly, don't race mix, stick to the tree of life. And, and we're going to get that soon in, in Weissman's faulty thinking and, and false premises. What We're going to get to that point real soon. But further on, on page eight, of his book, Weissman makes a declaration under the subtitle, Adam and Eve Sin. And he states, it is important to identify the actual sin of Adam and Eve, because that sin is what caused their death, their condemnation from God, and their expulsion from Eden. The proponents of the satanic seed line either assert or imply that their sin was due to their having sex with Satan in the form of the serpent. And, and no, we don't imply that. We have seen that Eve's sin involved her interaction with the tree of knowledge, not with the serpent. And we have already answered this in relation to Whiteman's statements concerning 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But here we shall repeat portions of that answer. It's important to get this across and, and hope that people study it 
from this perspective because they, I'm, I'm convinced they will find out that it's true because it cannot be undermined in scripture. As the apostle John informed us in chapter three of his first epistle, sin is transgression of the law. Paul of Tarsus tells us the same thing in Romans chapter four, where he said that where there is no law, there is no transgression. Then in Romans chapter five, Paul said, for until the law, meaning until Mount Sinai, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now here Weissman admits that Adam and Eve committed some sin. So what law did they transgress so that sin could have been imputed to them? Sin was, as Weissman admits here, imputed to Adam and Eve. So what law did they break? It's true that there's no Deuteronomy, there's no Leviticus, there's no body of law which was given to the children of Israel. But there was one law given to them directly, and that was in Genesis chapter 2 where it says, and the Lord God commanded, he made a law, commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So we see a law and we see a judgment. What's going to happen to you if you transgress that law? Now, Weissman can pontificate on this all he wants, but there is a precise way to know exactly what it means. Even if one refuses to understand the idioms of Genesis chapter 3, and that way is in Genesis chapter 6. Except for Noah, who was perfect in his generations, a word which also means descent, and his family with him, all of the descendants of Adam and Eve were also held accountable for sin in an episode where they were clearly committing fornication or race mixing with the fallen angels, with the giants that were in the earth in those days. So they were all destroyed for their sin. But how could that sin have been imputed to them if there was no law? Well, there still was one law, and that is the law of Genesis chapter 2, where Yahweh told Adam, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. They race mixed with the fallen angels, and they all died, because they must have transgressed that same law, which was the only law given to men up to that point in time. If the law which they transgressed was not the law given to Adam, then the law which they transgressed is not recorded and Yahweh punished them without having given them a law, which makes liars of both John and Paul. But John and Paul are not liars. And the only liar here is Charles Weissman. Instead of considering these things, Weissman makes another ridiculous straw man argument and says it should, be, it should be noted that eating from the tree, from the same tree, caused the sin of both Adam and Eve. Whatever Eve did with the tree, Adam did also.
So if eating from it means Eve had sex with the serpent or Satan, one must also say that Adam had sex with the serpent. If this serpent was a male, then Adam must have engaged in sodomy. And to say Adam engaged in sex with another woman is 100% speculation. But all of this is based on Weissman's own speculation. What a clown. This guy's a clown. All Adam had to, all Adam had to do to have the same guilt as Eve was to accept Eve after she sinned, as we learn at the end of Romans chapter 1, where Paul stated of the sinful society of his own time, that they, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only who do the same, but also they who have pleasure in them that do them. And the King James translation is a little rough here. But what Paul is saying, that the people who sin in such manner as he described, they are worthy of death. But also the people who accept them after they've sinned in that manner, they're worthy of death too. Those who have pleasure in them that do them. If I'm a murderer, and you know that I murdered one of, my, one of our white brethren, one of our white brothers, because that's what murder is, properly. If I'm a murderer, and you accept me, then you're also guilty of the murder, because I'm worthy of death. And if you accepted me, after you know that I killed a man, and yet you continue to accept me, then you're also worthy of death because you knew that I committed this sin, this grievous sin, and you're accepting me. That is a biblical concept that goes all the way back to the days of Moses. It's not anything new. It's always been in scripture. It's in Leviticus chapter five, that if a man knows that somebody sinned and he doesn't testify to it, that then he's also worthy of his sin. But if Adam also ate from a tree of knowledge, it is less speculation to say that he had slept with some strange woman than it is to say that he slept with the serpent. That is because Eve ate of the tree, not of the serpent. Weissman's creating a ridiculous argument so that he could appear to triumph over it. And in reality, Weissman is just a clown. Eve desired the tree, not the serpent. The serpent merely deceived her into the act. So, if she gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat, must be interpreted to mean that Adam had to eat of the tree also, then Adam may have partaken in sexual intercourse with any member of the race which the tree represents. Or he may have merely had sex with Eve in her defiled state, thereby accepting her sin and being just as guilty of committing it. Weissman insisting that Adam must have committed sodomy betrays his own perverted mind. And once again, he's exposed as a liar. He's creating yeah, his I've, um, lie. Sorry, sorry, Bill. Go ahead. Um, not necessarily Wiseman, but other people go way overboard using an emotional argument saying, do you really believe that Adam was a homosexual? And they'll get explicit, of course. Uh, 
that the our father had butt sex with Satan. Is that what you really believe? Do you believe the mother of all our race was an adulteress or whore? Do you really believe that? And that's often their argument, that emotional appeal where people go, oh, no, I won't believe that. That's crazy. Well, well, they can't possibly take what they're doing seriously, and I'll explain why. Because in the law, if you create a false accusation and you assert it publicly, then you're guilty of it. If I'm not guilty of it, you're guilty of it. If you create a false accusation against me and assert it publicly in the law of God, you're guilty of it and you are deserving of the punishment for it. Sodomy is a capital crime. If they accuse Adam of being a sodomite, then they're guilty of sodomy. That's how the law works. Yeah. As long as they and, um, as the we spoke yesterday, publicly. We... I'm sorry. sorry. As long as they make the accusation. I was going to say, Wiseman keeps arguing against himself over and over again. I, I've never read someone who, you know, of all the two seed liners who say all these things. It's right. just crazy, all the things he's coming up with. And that's what a straw man is. That's what he builds houses of straw or men of straw who don't really exist because nobody says these things. And he argues against his own man of straw that he built. That, that's foolishness, but that's Weissman. I would destroy Weissman in a debate. He's dead. It's a shame he's dead. He died in 2016. I wish he was still alive, just so I could send him these podcasts. <laughs> He'd probably block you. Well, well, right. Ted Weiland blocks me all the time, and, and they're of the same ilk. They were butt buddies if I want to use their own pejorative. <laughs> Weissman is, well, Weissman continues, and, and he says, God never commanded Adam and Eve not to touch the serpent, nor to abstain from sex with the serpent, nor to stay away from the serpent. God only said not to eat of a certain tree. Well, who said that Eve had sex with the serpent? I mean, I've never said it. Here, Weissman creates another straw man argument. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to, make, to be desired to make one wise, remember the epic of Gilgamesh, all about sex, she took it of fruit thereof. Remember Song of Solomon, chapter 4, same language, all about sex, she took it a fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. We do not insist, and neither does Genesis, that it was the serpent with which Eve had a sexual relation. But if the serpent is both a serpent, allegorically, and also a member of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then all conditions are met and all statements are true. And the serpent can have seed resulting from the transgression. Weissman is trying to formulate arguments that he can effectively argue against. But these arguments that he formulates do not properly represent what we believe about Genesis. Furthermore, Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between 
thy seed and her seed. And if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents a race of people, then the entire race has seed in common, and the entire race is of the seed of the serpent. So that must not be interpreted. It's not necessary to interpret that statement as narrowly as Weissman insists. Weissman concluded the section on Adam and Eve's sin by saying, the sin of Adam and Eve had to do with transgressing the law, which is what the tree of knowledge represented. Sinning against God's law brings death, not sex. But here, it is Weissman who is once again conjecturing, where he claims that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the law. He never proves it. He just makes the claim and expects his readers to accept it. There is no particular verse which supports that statement anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere. So here is another example of Weissman's blatant dishonesty. He complains that the act of sex is not again described in Scripture as enjoying fruit. So it cannot mean that. But we have shown that such an allegory is made elsewhere in the Song of Solomon and in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Then Weissman asserts that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the law. However, that is not described anywhere. So his twisted opinion is condemned by his own standards. We can wonder why. In Revelation chapter 21, at the other end of the Bible, there is a tree of life, and it bears 12 fruits, which evidently represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But there is no longer a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Christ wants us to keep his commandments, we should expect to see one if that tree represented the law. Thus David had written in the 119th Psalm, I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. If the law were the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then, like David, men should have been eating from it and would not have been commanded to keep away from it. Weissman is just a clown. He's just a clown because he's trying to squeeze the tree of knowledge of good and evil into an allegory when it must stand for exactly the opposite. It is not the law. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, the last chapter of the Bible, where you see the tree of life, it says, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. The gates which only have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel upon each one of them. So, if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
were really the law, as Weissman claims. And if Yahweh in the garden did indeed give Adam a law, as he did, Genesis 2.17, then we would have expected Yahweh to want Adam to embrace that tree and eat from it constantly. But it was not so. The tree of life is an allegory for people, and therefore, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is an allegory for people, but it is not the law. So Adam was told to stay away from it because it was a race of evil people. In Romans chapter 7, Paul said, I had not known sin, but by the law. Paul did not say, I had not known the law, but by sin, which is essentially how Weissman has twisted his understanding of Genesis. Paul went on in that chapter to admit that he sinned in spite of knowing the law. Therefore, to know sin is to have experienced it by having committed it. The truth of this opinion is ascertained. The truth of this conclusion, I should say is ascertained in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul said of God in relation to Christ, for he had made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Of course, Christ did know the law, and of course, Christ did know what sin is. But he knew no sin because he had not committed any sin. So, to commit sin is to know it and to know evil. Once more, I shall repeat this. In truth, the children of Adam had transgressed the law. And the only law given at the time was not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So then we know that the tree is an allegory for the fallen angels, as that was also the sin of Genesis chapter 6, for which they were punished. And according to the apostles of Christ, they could not have been punished unless there was a law. There was only one law given at the time, which is the commandment to Adam not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By that, we know for sure which law they broke and how they broke it. The account in Genesis chapter 6 establishes our interpretation of Genesis chapter 3 to be true. In turn, our interpretation of Genesis chapters 3 and 6 is upheld consistently throughout the New Testament where there are bad trees and good trees. And bad trees cannot produce good fruit while good trees cannot produce wicked fruit. Yet all of this describes people, races of people, and not wooden trees. So when you get to the end, Revelation chapter 22, of those two trees that were in Genesis, there's only one tree left. Right. And um, <clears throat> Bill, when it comes to good trees, bad trees, there's no way this can be spiritual because, you know, good people have, you know, bad children all the time. Uh, you only have to look at the kings of Israel and Judah, or even, um, you know, throughout history to see you'd get a good king, a bad king, then a good one, then a bad one. It can only mean race because white people, even if 
they are bad people. They're still going to have white children. And well, well, that is why. No matter what they do, whether they try to obey the law, they they can only have mixed race bastards. It can only mean genetic trees. It can only mean physical seed. It cannot mean spiritual. It's just nonsense. Absolutely. That is why the sheep are nations. The goats are nations. Matthew chapter 25. Read it twice because the goats are not judged for how they treated one another. The goats are not judged for how they treat other goats. The goats are only judged for how they treat the sheep, period, how they treat the sheep. That's what Christ is saying. It's very clear. The goats are judged for how they treat the sheep. All the goats are destined for the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. All the goats are going to the same place that these original rebels against God, these fallen angels, are also destined for, the lake of fire. But all the sheep go into the kingdom of heaven. Throughout the law, we have the wicked who are never given any chance for repentance. And they are destined for the fire. Throughout the Bible, throughout the scripture, they are destined for the day of Yahweh's wrath. They are destined to be destroyed. And then you have other people who can be wicked or can be good, but they are always offered repentance. And John says in his first epistle, I believe it's the opening of chapter two, that we should not sin. But if we sin, we have a propitiation for our sin in Christ. But then there's other wicked people who don't have that propitiation. It's pretty clear when you really read the New Testament in the context of what we're saying. John the Baptist said the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. And he challenged the Pharisees and the scribes to do good, but God challenged Cain to do good. Paul of Tarsus challenged Herod Agrippa too to do good. We see throughout the scripture where the wicked are challenged to do good, but they can never do good. And that should serve as a lesson to us as well. God challenged Cain and said, if you don't do well, it's because sin lies at the door. Cain immediately, very next verse, went and killed Abel. He couldn't do well because sin lied at the door. The, his entry into the world was a sin. That's why he couldn't do good. But you can't override genetics. No, you can't. But in spite of that, God still challenged him to do good so that we could see that a bastard can't do good. I think it was Aeschylus. Yeah. It may have been Euripides. I think it was Euripides that said that the bastard is always going to be the enemy of the true-born son. Euripides must have read Genesis. <laughs> And every civilization, tribe, clan, society outside Israel has always failed to this race mixing. Um, you know, if we go back to the Assyrians who were once a great cedar tree, obviously they mixed 
<clears throat> I mean, obviously there were other reasons. They were, um, you know, invaded by uh, the Israelites and uh, an alliance, but clearly there was race fixing going on, which weakened them, and they what? mixed with this tree of knowledge of good and evil, well, and right. that caused them to, de- get, to decay and weaken. What once the Chaldeans took over Babylon, they started to mingle with the Canaanites. They had no laws against it. Once the Assyrians rose to their great empire, they started to mingle with the the, the Hittites and Canaanite peoples that they had conquered. They had no laws preventing it. Um, the Greeks did have customs against fornicating, which they considered race mixing to be fornicating. The Greeks considered Cyrus the Persian a bastard. Above over and above our own standards, because we understand the Medes to be Adamic and the Persians to be Adamic, but Herodotus considered Cyrus, the king of Persia, the great emperor, to be a mule, which is a bastard, because he was half Mede and half Persian. So they had stricter standards than we would have today at one time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also... um... Just one more thing, uh, race mixing, it also endangers your brethren, your race, your community. It doesn't only chop off your branch, but also one day those descendants are very likely going to go and race mix with your white brethren, which is why it's so dangerous. Well, well that's absolutely true. I mean, there, there are, why do we see in Revelation chapter 2 that Christ is going to take the people who follow Jezebel in her fornication and throw them, cast them onto a couch and give them tribulation. But he doesn't say he's going to kill them. Then he tells them he's going to kill their children. Why? Because (laughs) obviously the children are the result of the fornication. They're bastards. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord Therefore, every bastard has no future in the kingdom of heaven. When they die in this life, they're just gone. Yeah, and all race mixers will be ashamed. Right. And children won't be up there with them. Absolutely. And that's their own decision. And, and that's Esau's punishment. Because he was a profane man and a fornicator. And Paul used that word for fornication very clearly to allude to any, a race-mixing event in Numbers chapter 25. So that defines how Paul saw the word fornication. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he's warning the Corinthians against committing such fornication. I think we could cover one or two more topics, and we probably won't get as much done as I was hoping to today, but that's okay. We have plenty of weeks in the future. On page nine of <laughs> yeah. his book, on, on page nine of his book, where Weissman begins to address the seed of the woman, he proceeds by misrepresenting, as usual, a few traditional two seed line positions by oversimplifying them. There, among other things, he states the seed of the serpent mentioned in this verse is said to be Cain and his descendants. Now, I would include with that all of the other branches on the race of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Since the woman referred to is Eve, it is said that the seed of the woman are Adam's descendants through Seth. 
But if Cain was the product of the serpent and Eve, then Cain is also a seed of the woman. That is, if Cain and Seth came from the same woman, Eve, both are her seed. This is Weissman, and he's being stupid, and we're going to explain why. But first, I'll finish the quote. He says, the verse does not speak of Adam's seed, only the woman's, meaning anyone who came from Eve's womb. Therefore, there is no reason why Cain and his descendants cannot claim to be of Eve's seed, even if Cain was fathered by the serpent. But Genesis 3.15 speaks of two very different seeds. And we're going to discuss more of where Weissman goes from here. But first... As I have also already said, I would think that the seed of the serpent is more than just Cain. It is the entire race of the fallen angels and all of their earthly corruptions. After the manner which we have explained in many other presentations in Christogenia, those Rephaim, those giants, that they're part of the seed of the serpent. That, that's where they came from, because God didn't create them. <laughs> and, and they're obviously equated with the angels that left their first estate. That is a little beyond the scope of this argument here to make a full proof of that. So we won't elaborate any further. Weissman only conjectures the idea that Eve's seed is anyone who came from Eve's womb. The grounds for proper marriage are established in Genesis chapter two, where we read, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Eve contained 100% of Adam's seed because she was taken out of man. So in Genesis chapter 3, God did not have to mention the seed of Adam because Eve was created wholly from Adam, and therefore her seed is Adam's seed. Abel and Seth are therefore also Adam's seed, and they are the woman's seed because their seed is all one and the same. So once again, Weissman's argument is disingenuous as it is based on a false premise. Anyone who understands genetics <coughs> should understand this. If Eve gave birth to a bastard, that would not be her seed because the child has half of its 46 chromosomes from an alien father, from a race different than her own. So the seed of the child would be different than the seed of the woman by 50%. The only way the woman could have a child of her own seed is to have a husband of her own race to produce that child. So if Cain was a bastard, then his seed was really of the serpent. Yahweh God is not going to take credit for it. And it is not of Adam or of the woman. Christ, where he asserted that their father was a devil. Cain, who was also the first murderer, <clears throat> proves for us that Cain certainly was a bastard. So do his adversaries, since they knew what he meant, where they said, we weren't born of fornication. They knew the implication 
of what Christ was telling them. Weissman's too stupid to know it, but they knew it. Christ answered and told them that God was not their father. They knew what he meant, but they certainly were born of fornication, despite their protests. Weissman made yeah, this um, I'm sorry. Sorry, Bill. I just wanted to say that's generally looking at a modern perspective and trying to force that on Genesis. You know, if you have a bastard today uh, with um, a foreign wife, you know, they'll take everything off you. Uh, you know, there's laws that force you to look after that bastard. And I know it's different in America. Some states, they'll take everything, your house. But in those days, it was very different. You know, you could just reject that bastard. Right. And and you could and people reject, need to understand that. You could even reject sons and wives that were not necessarily bastards if the, the interest of keeping them was in conflict with other sons and wives. And that's very true. That's very true in the story of Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. Keeping Hagar and Ishmael around was in conflict with keeping the interests of keeping Sarah and Isaac around. So Hagar and Ishmael just got yeah. sent off. Goodbye. You're out of here. Here's your ticket. You can go now. <laughs> So Weissman is basically holding Eve to the Babylonian legal system where every child that you have and every wife that you have, you're indebted to forever. That's the Babylonian law system. Yeah. Weissman's probably an expert at that. Uh, he certainly is no expert on biblical law. Yeah. And in the eyes of Yahweh, a bastard is not your child. It's right. a monstrosity. It's an abomination. Absolutely. He makes us live with our sins. He does do that. He made Esau live with his sins. He made Judah live with his sins. He had mercy on Judah, but that wasn't for Judah's sake. That was to fulfill the promises that he made to Jacob, that there would be 12 tribes in Israel. That's the only reason why Judah got mercy. He had mercy on Judah, but he had no mercy on Esau because he could fulfill his promises and make Esau live with his sin. And that's the example there. And use Jacob to fulfill the promises because Jacob was the obedient son. The, um, uh, okay, the enemies of Christ, they knew what he was talking about when he told them their father was a devil. They responded, we weren't children of fornication, but they certainly were. They didn't believe they were, but they were because they had descended from Cain. And we can establish that in history and in scripture, that they were Edomites and they were not truly of Judah. And that's also prophesied in Malachi chapter 2. That exact conversation in John 8 is prophesied in Malachi chapter 2, and that further helps us to establish the truth of what he was saying. But Weissman then dishonestly exploits the fact that Adamic society is patriarchal, where he says seed lines or lineages are not called the house of Sarah, the children of Rachel, the seed of Bathsheba, which is a reference to Solomon or the seed of Eve. 
And I would say that first, God never said that Eve's seed would be called after her name. She could have seed without it being called after her name, although God did make a reference to her seed. A very similar situation is found in Sarah. In Genesis chapter 25, where we read, And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. And I'm sorry, this is in reference not, not to Sarah. It, it's actually, I believe, a reference to Rebekah. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one shall be stronger than the other people, and the <coughs> elder will serve the younger. And there was a promise made to Sarah that was similar to that promise, but not precise. And, and perhaps when I prepared my notes, I meant to quote the promise made to Sarah, that nations and kings would be of her and the like. But I quoted the promise made to Rebecca. While in our patriarchal society, the offspring are named after the men, it nevertheless matters who the mothers are. Abraham prayed for Ishmael because Yahweh rejected him on that same basis as we read in Genesis chapter 17. And Abraham said unto God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall indeed bear a son and shall call his name Isaac. Thou shalt, speaking to Abraham, call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his seed after him. So, to God it mattered who the mother was, because women do have seed too. They bear the seed of their fathers, as Eve bore the seed of Adam. Later, Esau was rejected because of the race of his wives, as we read in Genesis chapter 27, where Rebekah exclaimed, I am weary of my life, because of the daughters of Heth, the women which Esau married. In the very next verse, Isaac expresses the fact that the blessings of Abraham would be passed on to Jacob as long as he married a wife of his own people. So Paul, in Romans chapter 9, explained that the promises were transmitted through women as well as through the men, where he wrote in verse 8, that is, they which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And then he defines which promise. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. Referring to that Genesis chapter 16 promise that God made to Sarah. And then he says in verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, referring to the promise that I did quote, which God had made to Rebekah, not to Sarah, two nations are in thy womb. So Charles Weissman was a clown. And whether or not he knew it, <clears throat> he was a dishonest clown because the promises, it was important to Yahweh God to carry 
on those promises through the women, just as through the men in our patriarchal society, the family lines are always named after the men. But that doesn't mean that the women aren't important. And that doesn't mean that the women don't have seed. They certainly do have seed. Or Paul wouldn't have mentioned the importance of these promises to Sarah and Rebecca in Romans chapter 9. And it wouldn't have really mattered to God whether Hagar birthed the heir or whether Sarah birthed the heir in the Genesis accounts in chapters 16 and 17. So Weissman's just dishonest. He's just a liar. And he's a clown. And he's a lying clown. I don't know how <laughs> else to describe him. Yeah. And, um, you know, when, when Esau race mixed, he lost everything. You know, <clears throat> poof, his whole heritage is just gone. It, it shows you how horrific um, that is in the eyes of Yahweh. And, you know, for all we know, Esau could have been a nice guy. He could have, if you met him, you might have liked him. And Isaac was clearly fond of him, but race mixing is the ultimate sin, and you just lose everything. It's really important that people see that. Well, right. If, if we do a true examination, and I've done this. I, this was a, a, a um, major feature of at least one of the episodes of Pragmatic Genesis. And I may have done it again in Bible Basics, but maybe not as deeply. I really don't remember. I don't remember what's in my podcast. I'm sorry. I've got to search my own notes. But, but in Pragmatic Genesis, I, I, remembered, I do remember going into deep detail on, on this episode with Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and his sons, Jacob and Esau. And Isaac loved Esau because Esau was a great hunter and brought lots of meat home for the table. So, in essence, Isaac loved Esau because Isaac loved his belly. And Jacob was sort of a side item. Now, theoretically, if Esau had been obedient to the promises made to his fathers and took wives of the women of his own race, like Isaac had done and like Abraham had done, then he would have inherited the promises and Jacob would have remained an obscure biblical figure. And, and we'd have seen the plan of God unfold through the legitimate seed of Esau. But the truth is that even after Esau realized he screwed up, he went and got a wife from Ishmael who was already cast out thinking that might please his father. So he found no room for repentance because he always sought to do what he thought was right instead of asking his father what was right to do. That is Esau, the great athlete, the great hunter who just couldn't do right because he always wanted to do his own will instead of finding out from his parents what he should be doing. And that's very clear in, that, in those chapters, in Genesis chapters 28 and 29, 27, 28 and 29 maybe. Well, Isaac didn't see a problem because he loved the meat that Esau brought home and put on the table. But then there was Rebekah who said, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. Esau's race mixing did 
trouble Rebecca. For that reason, Rebecca got Jacob to pretend to be Esau and fool his father into getting the, the blessings and the promises. And Rebecca did that on purpose. Jacob, he really didn't want to go along, but he had to obey his mother, so he did it. He had to please his mother, so he did it. And he ended up getting the promises and the blessings. But where Isaac said in Genesis chapter 28, that if you do this, you'll get these promises and blessings, that shows that after Isaac was deceived into giving Jacob the promises and the blessings, he realized why and he agreed with it. That if Jacob married women of his own, ra own race, that he will receive these things. He agreed with it in Genesis 28. Even though he didn't see it, he was blind to it in Genesis 27. And that is all there, as the apostles teach, that is all there as a lesson to us. God's law hasn't changed. Esau was the typical, um, I, we see them all the time here in Florida because there's air bases around Esau and, and there's a lot of hunting and, and, and um, outdoor activities. And Esau, to me, is the typical Air Force jock, confident in his career and what he's doing. And half of them have Oriental wives. They have Chinamen. They're with squat monsters. They're married to squat monsters. And they're having all little squat monster kids. And in fact, my own first cousin is one of those career Air Force men who married a Korean and race mixed and had kids with her, and she died of cancer at 60 years old. So he went out and got himself another Korean. And I, I don't know what the mentality is, but just like we have millions of Eves running around, we also have millions of Esau's running around. Men who do their own will, don't care about the will of their parents or their grandparents or God's will. Men who do their own will and go out and race mix. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we see with Noah, <laughs> only Noah survived. All the others were destroyed. You know, the implications of what will happen. Well, well right. The two seed line story is all throughout the scripture. And if somebody like Charles Weissman refused to see it, it's because he was purposely, willfully blind to it. Or perhaps Yahweh just wanted Charles Weissman to do what he did so that we could do what we're doing. Maybe there's a greater purpose for it all. <laughs> yeah. If if you um if you listen to Bible basics and then willfully follow along with Charles Weissman, you must be part of an agenda that wants to deny the issue of race in scripture so that you can promote race mixing today. Whether you're doing it directly or indirectly, it doesn't matter. If you think that a bastard is going to enter the assembly of the Lord in the last days, when Yahweh God himself purposely says in the law that a bastard shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. And then Jesus Christ in his revelation says that he will kill the children of fornicators. I will kill their children with death. That's the law forever. 
You can't get around that. It didn't change. It's not a product of that mean old God of the Old Testament if Christ himself is reiterating it in the Revelation. Yeah, so much for the uh, big, friendly, I love everyone, Jesus, that we often hear. Right. Jesus hates. He hates. The same, <laughs> I mean, that mean old God in the Old Testament said, I hated Esau. And Paul of Tarsus repeated in Romans chapter 9, I hated Esau. So Esau's hated in the New Testament as well as the Old. Jesus hasn't changed. And Paul explains that the vessels of destruction, the descendants of Esau, are vessels of destruction in that same place. Telling us in Hebrews chapter 12 that Esau was a fornicator, a race mixer. That's why his children are vessels of destruction. It doesn't change in the New Testament. Not at all. Thank you for being here. And we'll continue with um, Charles Weissman's dishonest commentary concerning the seed of the woman when we return to this presentation, to this series of presentations. Yep, brilliant. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me, Bill. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh, and if you want, you could wrap it up. <laughs> Praise Yahweh, God of white Israel, true Israel, not the God of the taco goblins, the gooks, the niggers, the Jews, and all the evil devils out there. Thank you, Bill. <laughs>